You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my outstanding podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, folks. Thanks for joining us today. All right. Today, we got a little bit of a treat. We're going to be talking about a lot of different topics, but I think ones that'll interest you. How do we evolve our go-to-market strategy? How do we put that into an ecosystem that really drives that customer as the center part of our conversation? How do we impact partnerships and community? A lot to go around, but I think you're going to love it. And to help us out with these varying topics today, we have Jill Rowley, who is a software sales veteran, a startup advisor, savvy investor, master networker, I've seen her in action, and currently limited partner and go-to-market advisor at Stage 2 Capital. Jill, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Carlos and Lisa. I'm excited to be here. Appreciate it. All right. Before we get into the important stuff... I would love to start with a question that really just gives our listeners a little insight into who Jill is. And that's basically, hey, Jill, what's something that you're passionate about that those folks that only know you through work may not know about you? Great question. And I would say for the past five years, I've been hooked on Orange Theory. And if you haven't done an Orange Theory workout, the first workout is free. And it is just, I never was a group workout person. I never was like music playing while I was working out because I was always listening to podcasts and watching webinars on recording and tweeting and sharing on LinkedIn. But I love the music and it's also gamified. And so there's like the number of splat points that you get, the number of calories you burn, the distance that you run on the treadmill, the meters that you row. It just really feeds into my personality of having a leaderboard and benchmarks and high energy. And I freaking love Orange Theory. (laughs) Awesome. I got to get out of the house more. All right. So (laughs) now back to the business side a little bit. And it's awesome. Tell us a little about your story. What are some key milestones in your career? And how did you get here today? Yeah. So actually, I got here by a first-generation college graduate. And I went to University of Virginia, and I was in the undergraduate business school program, an amazing education. And I learned really about business. And at the end of the day, business is about not just revenue, but value creation and value creation for your customers and all the different aspects that go into running a profitable business. I spent six years in consulting and made my way out to the Bay Area, San Francisco, and just really like got lucky and met the right person. And Salesforce at that point in time was under 100 employees. This was in 2000. And I didn't have any quota carrying experience, but I convinced them to hire me because I had the aptitude and the energy and the ability to learn. And so I spent two years at Salesforce and was the number one mid-market rep for the first two years that I was there. Woo-hoo! Yeah, woohoo! Nice. And then I actually joined Eloqua. Eloqua was a customer of mine at Salesforce. So I got to know the team and the product and the problem they were solving. And in fact, I was using Eloqua as a quota carrying sales rep at Salesforce, joined Eloqua as employee number 13 in a quota carrying sales rep role, 
and help the company go from zero in revenue to 100 million in annual recurring revenue. Was on the NASDAQ when we took the company public. And then a year later, we were acquired by Oracle. So quickly, I'll try to speed up. From Oracle, (laughs) I went into an evangelist role and evangelized social selling. And this was back in 2013. Now everybody knows if you're not on social networks, if you're not using digital and you're selling, you're behind. But this was the early days of really understanding the power of using LinkedIn as a network, as a social network, and first and foremost, to do research on your buyers, to be relevant to your buyers, to build relationships with your buyers that drive revenue, customer lifetime value, and advocacy. That was really my definition is using these networks, one, to do research. So I did professional speaking, did keynote speeches on the why, the what, the how of social selling. And then I got recruited to Marketo and never thought I would be in the C-suite of a company. At that time, it was valued at like $1.65 billion. It was public, taken private by Vista Equity. And then 11 months after I joined, we sold the company to Adobe for $4.75 billion. So I got to report Another woo-woo. Another big woo-woo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And my role actually in the C-suite there, I wasn't an operator. I didn't have a team. I had no one reporting to me. I reported directly to our CEO and I was hired because of my knowledge of the customer, the market for B2B MarTech and my passion for creating value for the whole ecosystem and community that surrounded Marketo as the platform, but then all of the tech partners, the agency partners, and also like the bloggers and the journalists and the analysts who covered, I was a lover of all of those things. And now I just do startup advisory and I do investing through stage two capital, a venture capital fund. Just. (laughs) Now I just do. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) That's amazing, Jill. Amazing. And so uh, full disclosure for our listeners, actually, Jill and I know each other from startup that she was an advisor for and uh, have known each other for years now. And I have seen her networking skills, this passion that she's talking about. I've seen this in action and it is incredible, Jill. You're one of the most connected people I've ever met. It's amazing how good you are at bringing people together. So when you hear those commonalities, you're like, oh, you should meet this person. You should meet this person. And it's incredible to watch. I just have to say that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It is my superpower. So the superpower is connecting. And it's people to people, people to ideas, people to resources. It really is. And thinking about it through the lens of the mutually beneficial value that these two people or these groups of people or this ebook or this podcast. It's really that ability to connect dots and do pattern recognition and really think about it through the lens of what is it? What's the value for the person who is receiving from me? And that's exactly how you create those like raving fans, right? Is by adding value through connection. So part of the topic today that we wanted to touch on is the go-to-market ecosystem. So Carlos, we prefaced the interview or podcast with that. So when you like just kind of segueing from connections and adding value, what is the dream scenario here for the go-to-market scenario and ecosystem? And why are people not getting it right? 
<laughs> well, one, they don't know about it, right? The, the aha or the oh shit moment hasn't actually happened. That's what I love. Like I love being the one who gives that aha or oh shit moment and tells the story of how we are getting to where we are. Like, how do we get here and why are we moving in this direction? And I've seen it through the lens of the digitization of sales, sales technology, the digitization of marketing and marketing technology. And now really it's those things were new and best practice and they still are. Like you still have to do marketing, you still have to do sales. But if you think about like ads and how much less effective and how much more ads cost, interruptive strategies like email and even generic outreach by automating a series sequence and cadence of emails, those channels are becoming less effective. And so we have to think more holistically about how do we influence and earn the attention of our customers and earning that. And so it's really thinking about not just doing it with our marketing dollars and our sales dollars and our customer success team, but doing it in conjunction, in partnership with companies that already have a relationship with the customer we want to have as our customer, already have a relationship that is delivering value. And then you put multiple pieces of the puzzle together and you deliver more value. You've got that multiplier effect by connecting different technologies or bringing in a services partner to help someone deploy new software or to run programs using the software. So it's this thinking of how do we go to market, not just with our own teams and our own dollars, but with companies that fit into our customers' already existing ecosystem, how do we do it? Like, how do we co-build product? How do we co-market? How do we co-sell? And then how do we co-retain? So that's really where I see things heading. And there's what's fun about this is there's a lot of data now about how co-selling, partner-sourced and influenced revenue, those deals close faster. They have a higher ARR. They renew at higher rates. And the customer sat in retention of those customers that you've gone to market with partners is much higher. So the data is really starting to come in around proving the model that partnerships and ecosystem approach is actually the evolving go-to-market. So one thing that really stood out to me as you were saying that is that it sounds like collaboration has to happen, meaning, as we all know, lots of people need to be involved. So how do you recommend people drive alignment and keep stakeholders on track throughout this process? Yeah, it starts with what's the goal, right? You got to work back from what is the goal we're trying to accomplish and who's involved, right? And we know that internally in our organization, we have to work more cross-functionally. We have to think more holistically around the customer experience, the customer journey, and we have to think about how that works through product, marketing, sales, customer success. We have to think not about handoffs, not optimizing the handoff from marketing to sales. I used to talk a lot about that. Like the handoff, yeah. the whoop, <laughs> it's qualified, it's sales ready, whoop, hand it off to sales. And then we won the customer, we got it in the door, whoop, 
handed off to customer success. Buyers don't want to be handed off. Customers don't want to be handed off. So they want the entire experience to be optimized for them, which isn't done through handoffs. So this internal partnership, collaboration, orchestration, all has to be done through the lens of the customer. And now you bring in partners who are external to your organization. And there has to be a lot of collaboration across those functions and your external partners. It is not easy. It is actually quite complicated to make all of this work. It requires a lot of trust. And there's a lot of trust building internally with your internal stakeholders and a lot of trust helping internal stakeholders understand how partnerships and the investment in really communities, communities where your customers live and learn, building community as an organization, if that is a path you so choose to go down, but how those investments are going to help product marketing, sales, customer success reach their goals. Very much always focused on the goal. That makes a lot of sense. And we're going to double click into how we do that more in a second. But I have to ask, how do we go about making sure we're reducing friction as we're trying to collaborate? Because that we've all been there. I was just telling a story about, about a simple thing that used to happen every year at Salesforce, which is shifting territories and how much that friction comes out and how different personalities handle that. I was just talking about that. But when you've got that many people involved, there's always friction points. So what's your recommendation to your clients for reducing that as much as possible? Well, you have to have mechanisms, effective mechanisms to communicate. And that goes well beyond an email chain with 50 people in the CC line, right? So you have to have tools internally that allow you to do better collaboration. And I'm going to date myself, but when I was at Eloqua, um, Slack didn't exist. So there was no Slack. (laughs) I think Slack is awesome, but we had Chatter. We used Salesforce Chat. Yes, Chatter. (laughs) And we were definitely a case study on how to use Chatter. And it was the ability to really collaborate around an opportunity, around a campaign, around a project, but you have to have these collaboration tools. There's no question about that. I think from a friction perspective and reducing friction for the buyer, the customer, that's really the end goal, right? How do you make it easier for them to they want a demo of your product. How do you make it easier for them to get a demo, right? Not making them fill out a form and going through the SDR qualification to then get tossed off to the AE to then now the AE comes on the call, does discovery, has to bring in a sales engineer to actually do a tailored demo. Like where are points in that process that you can reduce friction and allow that person to get access to the product more easily, There are all sorts of technology tools that are coming around to to improve that process. But reducing friction too, buyers are constantly having to tell the same information to multiple people. And when I think about partnerships, if you're working with a partner that already has a relationship with a customer, right, your potential customer, their customer, getting the insights and the information about the customer, the people, the roles in the buying process that they play, the pain points their current tech stack, the people that they like conferences that they go to, analysts that they subscribe to, 
But doing that research, not having to do it directly with the customer and a, a potential customer in a discovery call, but getting that information external um, to not having to repeat the same thing, the customer taking their time to repeat it. Thanks, Jill. In this whole idea about alignment and cross-functional communication is something we run into a lot of times in organizations because we're, we're, we're driving some behavioral changes in that organization. And it's interesting. It sounds like, first, you got to have that your own internal alignment within the company, making sure marketing, sales, service, product, they're all communicating well together. Along those lines, we had Michael Hubbard on one of our podcasts, and he talked about the chief customer officer and putting the customer at the center of the world and kind of seeing the world through their eyes, not just the renewal process, not just how we sell them, but even little things like how do they engage with us? Is it a horrible experience or is it a good experience? And if it's a horrible one, how can we mine that data and then do something about it? And how can we have someone be the voice of that customer in our own board meetings, and our own conversations to say, hey, are we going to do this or that? Let's not just looking at it from driving revenue or customer sat. Let's look at it from a customer's perspective and how it impacts it. Do you run into that in some organizations? Do they Because it goes back to friction. Sometimes it takes a lot of trust and reliance to kind of step back and look at that whole experience across different departments. Absolutely. I mean, Customer centricity, really the tone is set at the top around culture. Do we have a culture that focuses on delivering the best experience to our customers at every stage? And do we hire people who are passionate about our customers? Do we partner with other companies that are going to hold the customer in the same regard? I don't use the word alignment as much anymore because we've been talking about alignment for so long I use the word orchestration, and I think about the orchestration across product, marketing, sales, customer success, partner ecosystem, and how do we stitch and weave the customer's point of view and looking at things through the lens of the customer, even when we're setting our product roadmap, right? What do we understand about what the customer needs that we're not delivering? How urgent is that? How many of our customers are expressing interest in that? And we feed that information into our product roadmap decisions, right? Lauren Baccarello, she's an incredible, now she's a CMO, but I met her when she was very early at Salesforce and did more of that digital marketing. And she at Box, she moved into a CS role, kind of like not chief customer officer, but in a CS role. And what she learned by working with customers, and because she had been in marketing, is that the product marketing, the messaging that was being used to go out and acquire customers and what the salespeople were saying to win the deals set the wrong expectation. Mm. It wasn't aligned to what was actually going to happen when they became a customer. And so here she is sitting in CS trying to fix the message that was improperly setting the expectation the sales team that was delivering and saying that promising XYZ and sitting in CS saying, we have a problem. BBB, we got to back up the truck and fix our marketing messaging and then our enablement of our sales team. Because if not, we're going to churn, right? We're going to turn customers. So this orchestration and thinking about what is the feedback we're getting from our CS team? What are we hearing external, right? In product review sites, in mentions within communities, 
from our customers. We have to be listening to our customers in every channel that they're talking, that they're sharing, and then feeding that information. There's got to be a system to feed that information back into the organization. All right. So be warned, I'm probably going to steal your orchestrate terminology. I like it. I'm also guilty of using the mindset of handoff. We just started talking about customer success for a second there. And I think today in trying to run a business and trying to really manage net ARR, customer success plays such a critical role in that experience. And traditionally, it was, hey, they're the tech guys that get you using it or working. And I go, hey, no, no, no. They're the guys that create raving fans that will actually want to use the product and therefore will renew and expand going on. So when we talk about this orchestration across the organization, hey, if sales knows why they're doing it, why they're doing it now, why they're doing it with us, we need to find a way to orchestrate a way that they share that same exact data and expectation with our customer success teams because they're trying to fulfill that promise. And if, like you said, if we're not on the same page, let's call it, then, hey, we created a false expectation and we don't look like we're consistent. We looked at some research we love to talk about in our workshops about, it's from Gong.io and they looked at over 4 million call recordings and they talked about what makes a market leading organization. And it came back to one thing primarily, a secondary thing that I like to remind people to. The one thing it came back to is one word, consistency kind of like orchestrating that customer experience from the way we market them, sell them, and service them. The other little aspect of it is, and an organization can coach to it so that we're talking to each other and we're maintaining that. Uh, love your feedback. How are, or even give us some examples. How are successful organizations able to do that today? How do they orchestrate better than their competitors? So I'll give you an example of a company that I think is doing community-led growth. And putting the customer at the center, but not just the customer, but also Notion is a product that you can use as an individual. So you can sign up for Notion for free and you can build these templates to literally like manage your life. You can use Notion to aggregate. If you're an avid podcast listener, you can use Notion to capture all the podcasts that you've listened to, all your like hot takeaways. There's just unlimited number of use cases that you can use Notion for. Notion, what they've invested a lot in is really the creator community. And so there are users of Notion going out and creating really cool use cases, really cool templates and designing these templates and sharing them. And what Notion has done is they've created this marketplace listing of these templates. And not only are they creating these this listing, but the creators who are contributing them are monetizing. So if someone wants to pay for this webinar template or this customer onboarding template, then all of that money for that template goes to the creator of that. Notion doesn't even take a cut. Usually what you hear is that company takes up like Salesforce. If you're on their app exchange and you get a customer through the app exchange, you're paying Salesforce a fee for that customer. And so I think when you think about Notion really investing in that community, in that creator and wanting their customers, their users to win, that's a great example of how they're putting the creator customer at the center 
and making investments in, in allowing them to create and then monetize and share, right? Have a distribution channel to share. That's more that modern, like product-led growth, community-led growth, putting the creator and the user at the center. A more B2B enterprise example would be Snowflake. And Snowflake is the data cloud. And you can't be a cloud without an ecosystem, right? You can't. And one of their core values is customer obsession. And their CMO, Denise Pearson, and I go way back to the early Eloqua days. She was an early adopter, a customer of mine back in 2002-03. And this core value of customer obsession is how they set the tone at Snowflake. And they're making decisions across their go-to-market function through the lens of the customer. And during COVID, they created these forums for their customers to come for office hours. But Snowflake, it wasn't the office hour with Snowflake. It was the office hour of getting their customers in a room together, making that connection of customers who had similar issues or opportunities or goals or infrastructure, what have you, and allowing these customers to come together. And Snowflake not even trying to listen in, but just allowing that connection of their customers. That's some great examples of providing value to build a community, right? So I guess like when you're thinking about how do we go about getting started? If you're a company who hasn't really built that community-led growth and is struggling with the product-led growth, I like the idea of giving away something for free, but is that the only way to get people invested or the access to your customer base? Are there other examples that when you're just kind of starting out and trying to pivot to this that you would recommend people look at? So I always start with going out to where your customers are learning, right? Where are they doing their research? Where, what podcasts do they listen to? What blogs do they subscribe to? What events do they attend? What analysts do they follow? What communities are they already a member of? And going out and listening in those channels and really truly listening to what customers are talking about. And as you learn, contributing to those conversations, communities, events, channels, and then sharing that, right, in your channels, in with your internal folks, the learnings that you're getting from this community. Learning from a partnership approach, those gong calls, what are your customers talking about? What other tools are they mentioning? What agencies or service providers are they mentioning? And going out and having conversations with those trusted parties of your customer. I would, there's tons of great now content. You use Google, one of my best friends, and you search on PLG, product-led growth. You'll find a tremendous amount of content from VC firms like OpenView, Bessemer Venture Partners. And then you'll find companies that are selling products to help with P 
PLG, and they're creating incredible content. So I think the first step in any of this is really doing the research on what the conversation is already, and then figuring out how do you contribute to that? And then how do you initiate that within your four walls? You could also do like co-marketing, right? You could co-market with someone who's already has the ear of your ICP, your ideal customer profile. But it really starts first with this understanding that we're going to give really value to community before we actually start taking, right? Before we actually start trying to build our own community, before we start to pitch our products, right? It's this really like this learning environment. I love that advice because, well, I've got a client right now and it was interesting having the conversation around how to uncover and connect to value. And we were talking about how like, we would go in, ask our problem questions, look at mapping to the buyer's view of this ideal solution. And when we switch to that, the buyer's view of the ideal solution, like why is it important to understand that? I got the pushback of, but they don't know what good looks like. So they're like, we have to consultatively tell them this is the best way to set this up. And I was struggling a little bit to get them to turn around on that and understand why it's so important to hear it from the customer. So I guess in your experience, are there times when you do have to educate more than listen? So I think what we did effectively at both Eloqua and Marketo was create the roadmap for success. So maturity models, right? Of where you are today and what, where can you get to and what are the steps in the process? Who are the stakeholders that need to be involved? What are the investments in, let's say, data or campaign assets or like it's this, I think if you can create the maturity models and if you're also thinking about the path and sharing best practices, taking the learnings from research and doing things like benchmarking, I do think that there are a lot of companies that can package all of that up and offer that as value and be a guide to their customers on what the best case, like the best practice, common path to XYZ. So I definitely think there's a lot of area for both learning and teaching and teaching from the research and then the actual results of customers. All right, Jill, since I have you here and you got tons of experience, You've seen all sorts of great companies out there. Here's a challenge we kind of see, and I, I love your perspective. A lot of startups, young companies, build sometimes an amazing product. Sometimes it's even ahead of the market, let's call it, right? And I'm going back to Lisa's thing, and they got this mindset is, hey, you just got to show them the product. You got to show it what it does. It's amazing. It's going to be mind-blowing. Like they reinvented the wheel. And I get it. Because then they start having some early success with early adopters, people that actually see it. And they're all excited. But then they reach this, I don't know, for lack of a better word, saturation point. 
hey, the early adopters that are going to be wowed by your demo have bought. Now you got more latent buyers. People are a little bit more reserved. What I got today is good. I didn't even think of it yesterday as being a problem. And you're trying to get them to convert and even listen to you. And they take their old approach of doing it, which is, hey, let me show you the product, why it's great and why it's so amazing. Let me educate you. And nobody has time to be educated these days. So whether it's social, providing value, I'd love to get your insights. How do companies, let's say, turn that corner, go from being a company that really led by product and really leads now with, hey, customers, let me tell you about your businesses and some of the challenges you're having and how much better it could be in these areas. I don't know. What are your thoughts? So I do. I've seen this right from the early adopters to all the way to the laggards. Yep. I admittedly, when we get to the laggard stage, I'm out. (laughs) It's just like, it's, I want to be evangelizing what is new and what is possible. And so for me, it is a little bit surprising that I stayed at Eloqua for so long, for 10 years, because we were getting deeper into not quite at the laggard stage, but we were definitely late adopters. I think the best, your best salespeople, I'll go back to this, they're not on your payroll and they're your customers. And they're your partner advocates. And so the more you can, one, earn the attention by showcasing who those late adopters are who have converted to the new way, that is validation that you should be going in that direction. And if you're saying that 72% of B2B companies are using our product, you know, then that that's a why, okay, if 72% are why, why not? So you can use data and research as well. I think the type of salesperson you need is different. And you still, I think differentiation is still one of the hardest things to do in sales is now that everyone's doing it and this product is a well-known thing and there's 10, 15 different products that do the same thing, for about a similar price, then, okay, so then how do I know which one I should pick? And this is where I think really honing in on who your ideal customer profile is and the types of companies and people who are using your product, that that's going to help you stay more focused on the more winnable accounts. And I think there isn't one product that is the best. And the question is, why is yours not better, but better for XYZ company? Because there isn't one that's better. It has to be better for me based on what I'm trying to accomplish, where I am in my adoption maturity. And so, and where everyone else in my organization is in terms of aptitude and appetite for change. So it's really contextualizing and creating differentiation around what's important to that potential customer. Love it. When you talked about knowing where the customer's at today, like some people talk about, you got to educate. I'm like, again, I don't think anybody's got time to be educated. I kind of have this crazy analogy of, it's like trying to teach physics to a five-year-old. You can try to educate them till you're blue in the face, but if you're going to talk at a different level and language than you're used to, they're never going to get it. 
we're going to have to find a way to get down to the ground where they're at and use examples that they can relate to within their business to kind of create interest. And when you find that secret goal that kind of gets attraction, then you can use it in your social outreach with your partners because now that, aha, now I get it, right? This is why people work with you. And hopefully it's at turning that corner. And I don't know, it's, there's a long way between those early adopters and the laggards, right? It's a long, it could be a long journey. And the more we can get, understand why our customers buy us. Like I just got this with a new client and go, Hey, do you know why your customers use you and continue to use you? What would they say was a big difference? And sometimes it's even just the way you interact with them, the experience. It doesn't always have to just be technical speeds and feeds or features and functions. So great topic. Yeah. Often I think you're spot on, Carlos. It is, it is about the relationships and the customer experience and the trustworthiness and the knowledge, the institutional knowledge then you have about them. And a lot of times starting over and going through that process with another tech provider or service provider, right? Like, and even going back to like this partnership ecosystem world, if you are one of five products that are integrated that the customer uses, like if your product is hooked into five other, it makes the customer stickier. Because going through that rip and replace and reintegrating is painful. And that doesn't mean you can rest on your laurels just because there's five products integrated, it's going to be become harder to rip out. No. How do you continue to maybe the sixth and the seventh and reducing the friction around that tech stack for the customer? So it is, there are ways to create more stickiness around how do you deliver that bigger, broader solution to that customer? All right. Well, we could talk about this all day long, I think. And But I'm just looking at time and want to ask a question that there's two questions we always ask at the end of every episode, Jill. And, and I'm going to change it up. I'm going to throw a curveball here. Because usually we ask you, what earns your attention when someone doesn't have a warm intro to you? But I think I know the answer to that, <laughs> especially after this conversation. I instead would love to know what is one of the biggest screw-ups you've made. It can be in your career, it can be in your investing, it can be in anything, whatever you want to talk about. Something you learn from. Good question. I've made a million bajillion screw-ups, no question about it. Some of them I would prefer not to share. (laughs) (laughs) Us too. But... But no one's listening. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it could be as early in my career as at Salesforce. And me not truly understanding how big girl, big boy sales worked and me not understanding territories and the importance of having really well-defined territories based on something as silly as a zip code. Lisa, you said I'm all about relationships and building ones that deliver value. And so for me, I was thinking, well, if I had Dan at company A was my customer and Dan left company A to go to company B, but company B happens to be headquartered in Wyoming and not in North Carolina, why would the rep in Wyoming then be the rep for Dan? Because Dan's the one who signs the check and Dan and I have the relationship. And so that's, I thought that made sense. But when you're scaling, 
you have to have well-defined territories, whether you use zip code, area code, industry, or whatever it is. And so my first territory review, I went in with this great idea about how to change the way we did territories rather than actually presenting what my territory plan was for Virginia, Maryland, D.C., Delaware. And I was handed it. (laughs) (laughs) I walked out saying, yeah, I really screwed up. And what I could have done differently is understood if that was something that would be received, right? Are they open to me talking about how I think territories could be done better and would have learned very quickly that that was not something that would have been well-received and done the work on my actual territory plan that was needed to be done. You just try to change the model to named accounts and they just didn't catch on fast (laughs) enough. (laughs) And that was in 2001. So things have dramatically dramatically evolved, right? And so now we have actually a better way to even manage who has deep relationships. But yeah, back then, that was not a smart move for me. Hey, you did okay. I did okay. Yeah, you did okay in the end. And a good lesson learned. And I have, it's so timely, even though this won't air for a little while, but I have a client that I'm working with that just learned that same lesson. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I do think that rules are made to be broken or changed unless they're like law, then you should follow them. But I also think that if you're looking to move up in the organization or take on additional responsibility, You need to do the job that you're hired to do and do it really well and start doing things that are outside of your specific scope, but not at the expense of doing the job that you're hired to do. Yeah, exactly. Jill, excellent. You've given us a lot of good insights. So I almost hate asking you this question, but we call it acceleration insights. What might be that one piece of advice that you would want to share with the audience that helps them kind of hitting their own goals so they can be the next Jill? So I tell everybody, your network is your net worth. And so, and there are ways to do networking and there are ways not to do networking, but to be thinking about also in a networking perspective, you have to think about the give, 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 give before you think about what is the get, right? I talk about making deposits before you ask to take a withdrawal. So I think building your network and not from a a quantity, but a quality aspect and thinking about how can you deliver value to someone else to earn the right to connect and then also maintaining and building and building that relationship. So your network is your net worth, but more short time, every day, every deal. Every day, every deal as a sales rep at Salesforce and at Eloqua, I would look at my pipeline and I would say, what do I need to do? What does that buyer need to know? What conversation do I need to have? Who else needs to be involved? What asset can I share? Every day, every deal, how did I get the buyer a step closer to being able to make a purchase decision? Love it. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Jill. I hate to wrap things up, but if a listener wanted to talk to you about the topics we covered today or anything that you're an expert in, what is your preferred method of communication? LinkedIn, for sure. No generic invites. Do not send me a generic invite. It's hashtag social stupid. It's hashtag just plain lazy. Hashtag first impressions matter. Hashtag every impression matters. So don't send me a generic invite. You're putting the work on me to look at your profile and determine if there's a reason that we should connect. And I'm so close to the connection limit on LinkedIn 
that it really, really has to be very specific. Awesome. Perfect. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time today, Jill. We know how valuable it is. And it's been so great having you on the show. Yeah, thank you. And remember, action beats anxiety. Nice. Did you see that on my background? (laughs) I did. I did. I had to make it relevant to you, right? We're building the relationship even further than we've built it. Yes. Thank you. Yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it is one of my favorite mantras. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. I know you're as sad as I am to see things wrap up, but please check us out for more great content at www.b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with your family and friends and coworkers and dogs and cats and listen to it while you take a walk and maybe get off a screen for a little while. And if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I'm Lisa Schneer. I'm joined by my co-host, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.